The following audio is from North Pine Baptist Church. We trust that this recording will help you learn more about God and His message for the world. For more information and to connect with us, visit npbc.org.au. which is the last of the major prophets is Daniel. The next one is the beginning of the minor prophets, and that is Hosea. So Hosea chapter 1, we're going to be reading the whole chapter this morning. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Dibla, and she conceived and bore him a son. The Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu, for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again and bore a daughter, and the Lord said to him, Call her name no mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, Call his name not my people, for you are not my people and I am not your God. Yet the number of of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, It shall be said to them, children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel should be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head, and they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Yes, Father God, we pray my prayer now is that uh, the words of my mouth, the meditation of all our hearts, pleasing and acceptable to you, our God, and our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Amen. Anyone familiar with the uh, author Charles Dickens? You may have read one of his books. The, uh, his classic novel, A Tale of Two Cities, actually begins with the line, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. I think these words could very well sum up the times of Hosea, 8th century Israel. You know, we're introduced to Hosea and his times in the opening verse of this particular book. We see that in verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, the king of Israel. These kings that are mentioned here 
are mentioned because it places Hosea's prophetic ministry within a particular time frame in history. We find that Hosea is prophesying to the northern kingdom of Israel around the middle of the 8th century BC, around 760 to 725 BC. And in those days, the nation of Israel is actually divided into two kingdoms. I'll put a map up there uh, for you. You can also find that map, by the way, in your uh, study booklet if you if you grab one of those. Or if you haven't, you can grab one uh, right now or you can grab one on the way out uh, after the service this morning. Uh, Israel uh, under, um, Solomon, uh, under King David and King Solomon was a united nation. But when Solomon's reign came to an end, the nation split. You can read all about uh, this in uh, in um, First Kings chapter eleven through to thirteen. So I'll give you opportunity to take the opportunity this week to read through that, and that'll give you a bit of an idea of, of how the the, the, the uh, divided kingdom came about, what was going on there, and if you actually continue to read through, you'll be reading about these various kings and the and the context of their times, and that'll help you place you know what's going on here in Hosea in its own kind of particular historical context. The northern kingdom, by the way, was called Israel, and the southern kingdom was Judah. That uh, northern kingdom, Israel, is also referred to as Ephraim in, uh, in, in the scriptures, and sometimes even Samaria, although the capital was Samaria. The northern kingdom consisted of ten tribes of Israel, and the southern kingdom of Judah consisted of two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. You know, it was the best of times because it was during this time that both these particular kingdoms, the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah, really prospered. The, kingdom did in, the kingdoms did incredibly well. Uh, the major dominant uh, his, uh, military power of the day was Assyria. That's a little bit further north of Israel and to the northeast of Israel. It was the dominant military power, and it was experiencing its own internal problems. So its focus was more on itself, and because it wasn't expanding its territories and conquering the people around about them, it gave these surrounding nations a time of peace. And of course, in that time of peace, the nations thrived. The northern kingdom of Israel, the kingdom to which Hosea prophesies, flourished. They had abundant harvests. They had increasing herds and, and great wealth and plenty of freedoms due to this renewed safety and security of, of the nation because Assyria, that's as we said, was, was more focused on itself. In the midst of this great economic security and growth and, and prosperity, we can also say it was the worst of times. It was the worst of times from both a social and a spiritual perspective. See, Israel had only ever been ruled by wicked and evil kings, leaders who led the people of God there in Israel into gross idolatry. Uh, the main worship of the people of that day was, was of a, a god called Baal. He was a, a fertility god, and it was rampant throughout the kingdom. And the people had attributed the prosperity of the kingdom, all of the, the great you know, economic successes and things that they were experiencing, they contributed those to this particular God. And they would participate in all kinds of, of evil and immoral religious practices. And so the people were, were, were spiritually bankrupt, so to speak. They were very, very religious, but spiritually bankrupt. From a social viewpoint, 
the, the, the rich of the, of, of the nation got richer and the poor got poorer as those with much took advantage and exploited their fellows. Sorry, took advantage of and exploited their fellows. Look at this. The lust for power, for wealth, and for self-indulgence actually characterized the nation. And God, watching on, had finally had enough of the people's idolatry and immorality, and so he sends Hosea to bring God's words to his people. We see that in verse 2 of our passage this morning. It says, The Lord first spoke through Hosea. God speaks to him, and he, and he, and he wants Hosea to take his message to speak his words to his people. But it wasn't just going to be Hosea's words that would speak a message to the people of God. It would be more so Hosea's life and particularly his own family context that God would use to emphasize his message. For God calls his prophet Hosea to go and marry a woman referred to here as Goma who is characterized by marital unfaithfulness. It says in verse 2, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom. Now it's uncertain as to whether or not um, um, Goma particularly is, is already a promiscuous woman or that she becomes promiscuous after actually marrying Hosea. But as you sort of get a little bit deeper into the original language, we find that actually it would seem to suggest that, that she already is this kind of woman. And that God is actually calling Hosea to go and marry her regardless of her character and her reputation. But whether or not you, you go down that line or whether or not you think that she became you know, like this after she married Hosea, either way, she is this woman of very, very poor character. You know, when it comes to finding a person to marry, a person to, to share life together, to share in those, those joys and those triumphs together, to, to share in the, the difficulties and the hardships and the trials of life, you know, to raise a family together with, to build you know, life and, and wonderful memories and things like that together. I think the characteristic you most want to find in a marriage partner is faithfulness, isn't it? Integrity and faithfulness would have to be the key characteristic that you are looking for. You know, you want a person who is going to be, who's going to be true to you and to stick with you, to stick by you no matter what. I think there's, there's no betrayal that hurts more than the betrayal of a spouse. And as we read through Hosea, we're going to find that Gomer would consistently do this. She would consistently prove unfaithful to Hosea. Yet not only are we told that Hosea was to take a wife of whoredom, but that he was also to embrace into his family children of whoredom. In other words, children who were most likely born as a result of Gomer's illicit affairs. Yes, we, we read in the passage that her first child would be Hosea's says, you know, so in, in, in verse 3 it says, So he, speaking of, of Hosea, went and took Gomer, the daughter of Giblam, and she conceived and bore him a son. 
get the, the, the children that are, that, are, that are spoken of after in verse 6 and verse 8, we don't actually see that they are Hosea's son. All we, all we, not, we, we are told is that, Hosea, that Gomer conceives a child. It says she conceived again and bore a daughter in verse 6. And in verse 8 it says she conceived and bore a son. myself as reading through this, why on earth would God ask Hosea to marry someone else? Why? Knowing all of the, the, the hurt and the pain and the heartache that it would cause Hosea in his life, why would God subject this man to this particular life, to this particular life? reminds us that, that God's purposes are, are, prime, are primary in our world today. They are the priority. So often we want to put our own purposes and our own you know, ideas and our own kind of agendas and that before the things of God, but, but God, his, his agenda, His priorities must have the same priority in our life as they had in Hosea's life because Hosea obeyed. It says, so Hosea went and took Gomer, the daughter of Kidron. Why does God ask Hosea to marry such a woman? Well, verse 2 points it out. It says, go take yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom for the land, speaking of the people, particularly commit great whoredom by forsaking Hosea's marriage to Gomer, along with the children that that would be born to her, were actually meant to be this this incredible object lesson for the people of Israel, a living illustration, if you like, of the spiritual unfaithfulness of the people of Israel towards God. If we go back in the history of the people of Israel, we know that, that God had rescued Israel from slavery in Egypt that he had worked on their behalf, that he had worked in, in, in great power and might, bringing the plagues upon Egypt, that, that, that finally Pharaoh would relent and allow the people to come out of slavery. Under the leadership and direction of Moses, God brought them to Mount Sinai, there in the wilderness. And it was there at that mountain that God actually entered into this covenant relationship with his people. He made promises to them. He said, you, I will be your God. You will be my people. You will be to me a treasured possession. This covenant relationship is, is very, very similar to the, to the marriage covenant relationship that, that, that we have today in our own contexts. In fact, the Bible speaks about God you know, and his people in this marriage relationship. Isaiah chapter 54 and verse 5 says, For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth. He is called. God refers to himself as the husband of his people. If you go into Hosea chapter 2, and look at the moment towards the end of, of Hosea chapter 2, 
in verse 16, it says, And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my beloved. Again in verse 19, And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. And you will know the Lord. This marriage language that God uses in terms of his relationship with his people. God pledges his his steadfast love and faithfulness. It's the Hebrew word, I, I can't do it in, in, uh, in, in the Hebrew because you've got to have this really kind of sort of sound at the back of your throat, but it's chesed, okay? Chesed. It is God's steadfast love and faithfulness towards his people. And in return, God expected their faithfulness towards him, just as we would in, within a marriage relationship. That chesed is, is not only a steadfast love, it is, it is as a, it's an enduring love, a loyal love. It's an unfailing love, a love that will just never let go. That's the kind of love with which God loves us. God's chesed towards his people is found throughout Scripture. Uh, Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7 says this, The Lord passed before him, that is Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love to thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and children's children to the third and fourth generation. God's abounding steadfast love and faithfulness. Isaiah 54 and verse 10 says, For the mountains may depart and the hills may be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. And again in Lamentations 3, 22 and 23, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. Folks, this is the kind of love with which God loves his people. It is this love that guarantees God's purposes for his people. And it is this incredible love of God that is betrayed and rejected by his covenant people and and for which God is going to judge them. These judgments are, are vividly pictured in the, in the children born to Gomer. We see that in verses 4 to 9 of our passage this morning. God tells Hosea to call his first child Jezreel. It says in verse 4, And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel. And I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Jezreel had very much historical significance to the people of Israel. 
you know, how we can, sub, you know, we can often associate specific events, either, either good or bad, to, to a place. You, know, you only have to say the name and it kind of conjures up all those kinds of you know, images and emotions and thoughts and that sort of thing, a bit like perhaps Gallipoli or Auschwitz. Jezreel had that same kind of, 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 of meaning to the people of Israel back in that day. Because it was here at Jezreel that Gideon defeated the Midianite army. We, we see that in Judges 6 and 7. It was a place at that time that was a place that was covered in glory, but ultimately Jezreel would, would come to be known as a place of shame and defeat. Jezreel, for those of you who know your, your Old Testament pretty well, Jezreel was the site of Naboth's vineyard. Naboth was a man who had a vineyard and, and the king of, the, of Israel, Ahab, and his queen Jezebel, Ahab wanted that, that particular vineyard for himself. But it was, it was land that was, that was, that, that was given to, to Naboth as part of his inheritance. You know, the, the, his inheritance from God. And there was no way in the world that he was going to give that land away or sell that land. And so Ahab and, and, and particularly Jezebel conspired horribly to do a, a travesty of injustice and actually do away with Naboth and kill him and get his land for themselves. Later on, it was become even more well-known for the judgment carried out by a man called Jehu as he purged Israel of the descendants of the wicked king Ahab and his wife Jezebel. You read about that in 2 Kings 9 and 10. But even Jehu himself, having carried out the commands of God, he ultimately, you know, he ultimately basically you know, went the way of the previous kings as well. He was as wicked as... As them. We read that in 2 Kings chapter 10, verses 29 to 31, where it says this, if I can read it, it's just sort of coming to, uh, sort of sl- slowly kind of yeah, materializing, isn't it? There it is. But Jehu did not turn aside from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he had made, which, with which he'd made Israel to sin. That is the, the, uh, the golden calves that were in Bethel and in Dan. And the Lord said to, to Jehu, because you have done well in carrying out what is right in my eyes and have come to the, to the house of Ahab according to all that, that was in my heart, your sons of, the sons of the fourth generation shall sit, sit on the throne of Israel. See, Jehu carried out God's commands, but in verse 31, Jehu was, careful, was not careful to walk in the law of the Lord, the God of Israel, with all his heart. He did not turn from the sins of Jeroboam, with which he had made Israel to sin. Jehu's descendant was Jeroboam II. That's the the Jeroboam we read about back there in verse 1. You know, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, the king of Israel. It was under his reign that, you know, Israel had, had, had gone really, really well from an economic point of view, but they had certainly just gone in this downward, this downward trajectory in terms of their spiritual their spiritual lives, they had gone away from God and this worship of Baal had actually flourished and thrived and just spread under his reign. And so Jezreel then ultimately became this byword for bloodshed, this bloodshed that Jehu had carried out in killing all of these people. He went far beyond what God you know, commanded him to do. And so God is saying through 
the name of this child, Jezreel, that Israel would experience that same judgment, that same bloodshed and defeat, that he would break the bow of Israel, he would break their military might, he would break the nation in the valley of Jezreel. And if you go back into history books, you'll, you'll read in 733 BC, the Assyrian king Tiglath-Pileser III actually marched into Israel and there in the valley of Jezreel annexed Israel for himself. He had this, this incredible uh, military victory there and eventually after about 11 years, the whole kingdom would be completely destroyed in 722 BC. It's amazing how the Bible lines up so historically. Well, after Jezreel, we read that Gomer then bore a second child. And God told Hosea to name her No Mercy, or in the, the, uh, the, 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 the names of the day, Lo Ruhamah. You might have that in your Bible instead. And this child was to be a constant reminder to Israel that God would no longer show their mercy, but would bring his judgment upon them. See, God was not going to allow their sin to remain unpunished. Now, at that stage, verse 7 tells us that, that, that God would, would only, you know, would allow Israel to be defeated, but not Judah. It wasn't God's time for Judah at the moment. He still wanted to give Judah time to turn from their own wickedness and repent. Verse 7 tells us that, that God would not allow the southern kingdom of Judah to be harmed. The Assyrian king would not be allowed to defeat them. It says, but I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword, by war or by horses or by horsemen. In other words, God was not going to use their own you know, military abilities and capabilities and things like that to defeat this enemy, but God was going to act miraculously and powerfully to protect his people there. In Isaiah 37, verses 33 to 36, we read these words. Boy, that's hard to read, isn't it? Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city. This is speaking about Jerusalem or shoot an arrow there, or come before it with a shield, or cast up a siege mound against it. By the way that he came, by the same he shall return, and he shall not come into this city, declares the Lord. For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. And the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. And then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived at Nineveh. Again, we see the fulfillment of God's promise here in Hosea, carried out there in the book of Isaiah. God is true and faithful to his promises. We can count on that. God cannot go against any of his promises at all. It is not within his character. He cannot do that. Any promise that, God's make, that God makes... He, he keeps. The third child, a son, in verse 8, God commands to be named Lo-Ami, meaning not my people. And through the name of this child, God was announcing to Israel that they were, were not God's people and he was not their God. You know, from one perspective, this, this oracle of God really is, is just stating the facts you know, as, as they stand, the people through their idolatry 
had forsaken God to go after these other gods. And in that fact, they, they were not his people because they showed no resemblance to what God's people should be like. And he was not their God because they had chosen to worship these other gods. But there's an even deeper significance to this in that God is declaring that his covenant with his people would be null and void. It's a complete reversal of the covenant language that God had used previously. If you go back to Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 to 7, you'll see it reads, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of, Egypt, of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the, of the Egyptians. God is saying you will be my people. Leviticus chapter 26 and verse 12 says, And I will walk among you and will be your God, and you shall be my people. Folks, we need to appreciate the profound sadness of this situation, the, the, the profound, in fact, just the profoundness of this situation, that, that for Israel, that God was announcing to them that they were about to lose the greatest blessing they could ever have known of being called the children of God, of being called his treasured possession among the nations. These three children were a living testimony to the coming judgment of God. And no matter where these children went, wherever, whenever they were spoken of or wherever they were thought of within the, the nation of Israel, the people were confronted by the words of God to the nation. The terrible judgment was God was done with their constant unfaithfulness. God was done with their constant rejection of his love. And he was about to give them what they wanted, and, and, and they would be on their own. They would be outside of God's protection, outside of his provision, outside of his love, outside of his mercy. Can I say, there is no more desperate and hopeless place to be than in that place. Just when you think that all is lost, that all hope is gone, we come to verses 10 and 11 in our passage this morning. And it says this. These are, again, God's words. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured in number. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head. And they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of their bread. If what we see here in these verses is a, a complete reversal of the judgments that were previously pronounced by God through Hosea. Yes, God's judgments are sure and certain, but so is his faithfulness to his promises, like I was saying before. And in here, in these particular verses, we see an allusion back to the promises that God made to Abram back in Genesis, Genesis chapter 12, chapter 13, chapter 15, chapter 22. The northern kingdom of Israel, yes, it would be no more. 
but God would ensure that there would be a remnant of faithful ones, people faithful to him and to the covenant that he had made with him, who would become as numerous as God had promised to Abram back there in Genesis. Not only that, God would renew, not only would God renew his covenant with them, sorry, not only would he keep his promises, he would renew his covenant with them. It says that, that he would increase their numbers, but it says, where it says, in the place where it's, he said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. They would again be God's people, people of the living God, not of the dead gods that these people were worshipping you know, right there and then in, in Baal. But they would be people of the living God, the God who is indeed alive and is ruling and sovereign over all of creation. They would be his children. Be a renewal of the covenant, but there would also be a, a bringing back to the together of the people of the two kingdoms of Judah and Israel, a reunification of the people of God, and there would be one king to rule over them. And finally, it says that they would be placed back in the land from which they had been displaced. Now, I was speaking of Jezreel before. I was speaking that you know, Jezreel became a byword for, for for bloodshed and defeat and that sort of thing. The actual name Jezreel actually means God. And when God says here, and they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel, God is speaking about God planting his people again back in his land which he had promised to them. We'll see more about that in Hosea chapter 2 next week. Judgment was coming, the judgment of God was coming, but in the midst of that judgment, God would make a way of hope, of salvation, Isaiah's marriage to Coma doesn't just depict Israel's relationship with God and their unfaithfulness to God. It's also a picture of our unfaithfulness. Our unfaithfulness to the God who made us and who loves us. Because folks, we come to this passage and we look at this woman Gomer and we, we think, well, I don't know what you might think of Gomer in your own minds, but you've got to think what a, what a terrible and evil woman could she ever do that to God? But in the person of Gomer, we need to see ourselves. We need to see ourselves because that is who we are. Each and every one of us are Gomer. In fact, even when we are at our best, we are the mortal body. Even when we're at our best. Whenever we displace God with, with other things, whenever we give our devotion and allegiance to the things of this world, whenever we seek to place our own passions, our own desires and the fulfillment of them over honouring and pleasing God, we ourselves commit spiritual adultery. And every one of us is guilty of doing that. Because deep down, folks, our hearts... talking to a, a fellow only a few weeks ago and he was telling me that, uh, you know, about that he was a good person. His family, they, they did good things. They lived upright moral lives. 
did that, it's just not good enough. And if that's the way you're thinking today, that I can actually live such a good, moral and upright life that God will be, you know, he'll be, um, he'll have to accept me. And I've got news for you, you're all bad. You are Goma. You are a spiritual adultery, God writes. We all are. And unless our sins are paid for, unless God does a work in us and brings us to that place of reconciliation through repentance of our sin and faith in his saving Jesus Christ, we are damned forever. Every one of us is deserving of is deserving of God abandoning us and pouring out his righteous wrath on us. And can I say that when we think about sin, sin isn't just about breaking rules. Sin isn't just about breaking God's rules. Sin is more about breaking God's heart. Of rejecting his love and kindness and denying him his rightful place as Lord over all. That's what sin is. And yet because of the love of God towards us, his judgment doesn't have to have the final say. For as we will see in this book, as we work our way through it, God will never turn his back on his people In fact, he will go to extraordinary lengths in order to bring us to himself because he loves us. He loves you that much. Maybe you're looking at the beginning of our passage this morning for the big idea. And you'll be thinking, when on earth is he going to get there? What's the idea? What do you think the big idea is this morning? asking you to sing it out. But if you had to summarize you know, what, what this passage is saying about God and us today, what do you think the big idea would be? I'm going to give you just 15 seconds to think about that. If you had to summarize it, bring it all down into one sentence, what would it, what would it be? extends to us even in our blatant and ongoing unfaithfulness towards him. God's great love for his people extends to us even in our blatant and ongoing unfaithfulness towards him. Isn't God good? Have you ever felt so unworthy Have you ever had that thought in your mind that says to you, you know what, you just will never measure up, you'll just never be good enough? God's word to us today says, you're right, you will never be good enough. 
down to Rock Steven in that sentence and says, let me pick you up. Let me wash you clean in the blood of Christ. And let me draw you to myself in order to bless you, in order to make you mine, in order to love you, pour out my mercy and grace and kindness and goodness upon you. That you might be so gracious and thankful to me. That you might honour me and praise me for all your life and speak about my glories to those who are close to you. Of that great work that God has done in you. As when we gather here on a Sunday, that great love of God for us should be just bursting out of our hearts. Knowing that even in our and if you're anything like me, the, the, you know, the last week you look back and you think, oh my goodness me, what a mess I made. Not what a mess the week was, but what a mess I made. And yet, we come to a passage like this on Monday and God comes to us in the midst of our mess. What a great God. We're going to spend a time in having communion now. If you've got your communion elements, you might like to grab those out. And 1 John chapter 4 verse 10 says this. It says, In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. See, God does not love us because we are good. God loves us in spite of the fact that we are not good. And in the midst of our sin, in the midst of our wickedness and evil, God reaches out to us in his love. And it is this bread and this juice this morning that speaks very clearly of the love that God has for you and for me and for all who will come to repentance and faith in his invitation. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. See, the good news of the gospel is that in place of our sin, God gives us the righteousness of Christ. We are, we are made righteous in Christ. And so we can stand before God with that confidence, knowing that God sees us as he sees his own son washed clean. Folks, that should lift our spirits. So let's eat the bread in reminder of the body of Christ given for us that we might enjoy him both in the body and in his blood. This marriage um, language is is carried over into the New Testament because it speaks about the fact that the church, the redeemed of the Lord, you know, are in fact the bride of Christ. 
does Jesus pursue to be in his in the church to be his bride? People who come from all the wrong kind, all all the wrong side of the track, so to speak. People who come from dysfunctional and broken and 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 messy families. People who don't worship God, you know, as he should be worshipped. People who have all kinds of baggage and sin. People who have been rejected and, and, and neglected. All these people God invites to come, all and everyone who will admit their need before God, that, that they need to have Jesus as their Savior. Jesus says, those people, it is those people who are welcome to be part of his family, to be his bride. And folks, Jesus pursues people. And through his shed blood, he makes people a part of his bride, the church. And we are part of those redeemed people today. And one day we are going to be together with him in heaven. And we're going to sit down at what is called the marriage supper of the Lamb. That we will indeed be gathered around and celebrate in the fact that we will be presented to Christ as his righteous bride. And we will be forever with him. Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? That is the hope we have today. As we partake of this, this juice this morning, let us drink in memory of that and in gratitude for its gift. Jesus, we want to thank you this morning for the fact that you are a God who has demonstrated your great love for us through you, Lord Jesus, through your death, resurrection, and ascension back into heaven. And it is because of your death, resurrection, and ascension that our confidence is sure, that our hope is steadfast that we, are indeed, we will indeed not only know God with us here in this life, but that we will be, will be forever yours in the next. Father, we praise you and give you thanks for that. Thanks for listening to this audio from North Pine Baptist Church. For more information and to connect with us, visit npbc.org.au.